Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that trusts its own judgment. I'm Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the Substack Restorative Romance. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance Substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector and book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. Today, we're doing our episode a little differently. Each rake has recommended a book for the other rake to read. So we're going to cover six books that are not really related to each other, but only based on our recommendations, I guess. And then we'll discuss each of them afterwards. So yeah, we'll start with Ruin by Rumor by Alyssa Everett. So I recommended this to Chels. I actually really wanted both Chelsea and Emma to read this book, and it actually ended up turning out that way, mostly because we love miscommunication. And this is definitely a book where a lot of plot advances as people misunderstand each other. And then as they clarify, this also moves the relationship forward step by step. Also, I think we're all on the defensive with how people talk about heroines sometimes, but Chelsea is probably the, on the defensive the most. And Roxana is young and kind of naive, and I love that. I saw a review that called her a princess, and I was like, where? That's so mean. <laughs> Especially after, like, what happens to her in the book. Like, Yes, yeah. yes. It's like, have a heart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so if you want to give a bit of a plot summary, Chels. Yeah. So this is Ruined by Rumor by Alyssa Everett. In 1814, Roxana Langley's fiancé, George Wyatt, has just returned from the war. They got engaged before he left, and now, five years later, she can finally get married, and she's elated. Around the same time, Alex Winslow, the Earl of Ayersley, her neighbor and older brother's best friend, returns to the neighborhood to take care of his ailing mother. When Alex and Roxana meet again, we learn that Alex has been in love with Roxana for years, and he believes that she thinks he's awkward and a bore. This isn't entirely incorrect. From Roxana's point of view, we see that she thinks he's rich, good-looking, and painfully dull. Roxana's fiancé, George, seems to have it out for Alex, going out of his way to point out flaws and insinuating to Roxana that Alex thinks he's better than her and the rest of the provincials. George is also notably absent on his return, dedicating very little time to corresponding with and visiting Roxana, assuring her that she'll get more than enough of him when they marry. Once Roxana's engagement ball rolls around, George gets her alone and breaks off the engagement, refusing to tell her why he's had a change of heart. A distraught Roxana runs to the library where she's comforted by Alex. They kiss when they're alone, but quickly come to their senses. Soon after, Roxana gets the cut direct from an acquaintance and realizes that a rumor has spread that she was sequestered alone with Alex. To save her reputation, Alex proposes a marriage of convenience, which distresses Roxana further. She eventually agrees, and they marry. Alex and Roxana struggle in their marriage. Alex thinks that Roxana doesn't want him around and thinks he's a bore, so he leaves her alone so she won't have to suffer his company. Meanwhile, Roxana wants to make the best of her marriage, but doesn't understand why she can't get her husband to spend time with her. As she and Alex are getting closer, George inserts himself into their lives and tries to create a wedge between Alex and Roxana telling Roxana that Alex was in love with another woman. Later, after George has already caused tension, the married couple is in bed, and Roxana asks Alex if he's ever wished he was with another woman. But Alex thinks she's telling him that she wishes she was with George, 
In his anger, he confesses all his misgivings, that he thinks she's embarrassed by him and laughing at him, and that she's cuckolding him with George. He angrily leaves her, not listening to her protestations. Roxana chases after him, but they miss each other, as Alex has had misgivings and turns back. They finally meet up later at a ball, but Roxana has the misfortune of being accosted by George beforehand, so that's who Alex sees her with. Alex and Roxana confess their love to each other in front of an incredulous George, but not before Alex punches him for being insufferable. The best part of that book. <laughs> it's such a good punch. We get so few punches. I know. Um. Yeah, it was really truly earned too, because like, I don't think Alex was like ever like, I'm going to punch George, but George just like would not give up. <laughs> so Alex George, like, you've got to stop. Yeah, it was just like, it was like enough already. Um, so yeah, I really did like this and I definitely, uh, see why Beth liked it. I think I remember you were kind of talking about this before a miscommunication episode. I think maybe it was one that you were like considering adding in, but I can also see why you didn't because there are all sorts of different types of miscommunication in this book. So it would be kind of tricky to pick just one, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. You have miscommunication before they get married and just like how they perceive each other they don't know each other that well and then afterwards each person is too afraid to put themselves out there and be the one to be like hey I actually kind of have some real feelings here or I actually want to make a go of it like I don't think we talk enough about how scary it is to to make the leap yeah and like in their initial miscommunication is like something it reminded me a lot of forever and ever by Patricia Gaffney the the way that there's kind of like a kernel of truth in mm-hmm. kind of like their misgivings about each other because uh Alex thinks that Roxana sees him as a bore and and she it kind of does like maybe not in as uncharitable of a way like she doesn't think he's obnoxious and she doesn't hate being around him and part of her thinking that he's a bore is rooted in the fact that she thinks he doesn't like her so there is a little bit of truth to it but it's kind of like amplified by the fact that they're kind of like not giving themselves any credit I think yeah instead of kind of like thinking poorly of the other person they're like oh you must think poorly of me I think it also because their interests on the surface don't seem like they really align that much like Alex is really interested in politics and talking policy and just kind of the person he is. He's very hardworking and methodical. So he just he's giving it 110 percent. And it's not like I don't think Roxana isn't interested in those things, but she's interested in them eventually because that's something he cares about. And she mm-hmm. has been listening to him. There's like this part, I think, where she recites some information back to him and he's kind of startled to realize like, oh, she has has actually been listening to me (laughs) when I've been talking. Yeah, that section in the middle of the book, and this is kind of like another thing too, because I was thinking after I read this, I thought about this a lot, is that how many marriage of convenience in historical romance novels end up being like huge miscommunication books? Because like, that's kind of like where a lot of the conflict comes from, because you're already married, Mm -hmm. um, but you haven't necessarily come to each other with like, this understanding of each other as people that you would necessarily might have in a relationship where it's like, it's a marriage of love or it's a marriage of other reasons. So I think that it's kind of like sets itself up for that in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think it's a good internal conflict setup because by all appearances, they look like they're together, but they actually haven't come together yet emotionally. And so many um, Miss Marriage of Convenience, like this one, 
someone's already has feelings. Mm-hmm. Like there's very rarely like a true marriage of convenience where like the only motive is based on like the convenient reason. Um, usually someone is like obfuscating in some way. Like Alex is hiding his feelings from Roxana, and he deals with that in this book in a way I think a lot of one-sided romances don't. Where he's like, am I, he thinks about like, am I, am I like wishing on her downfall? Am I benefiting from this bad thing that happened to her? Is that mm-hmm. bad? Like he sort of grapples with that, um, with the morality of that because it's like Roxana has gone through this crisis. He's like, am I taking advantage of her by suggesting this marriage? Like, what's my duty to her because I compromised her? air quotes but also what's my obligation to 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 her like by not taking advantage of her so yeah but i think that would obviously lead to miscommunication if you're embarrassed to share your feelings the best miscommunication is also to uh when they are married i think just because like uh roxana is putting in so much effort into like trying to make the marriage work and he that alex does not really recognize as her putting in effort like he sees it uh he sees it as avoidance and he sees it as her being polite out of necessity. And so um, that was kind of like, it was kind of tough to read because you're just like at certain points, because it was just like, oh, I know they're so close. And you just like felt so much for them both. But yeah, that was definitely my favorite. And the bedroom scenes too, like that was, uh, there's also like pretty, uh, so when they sleep together for the first time, I think Roxana is about to have an orgasm and she doesn't end up, orgasming but she like kind of like felt like something was like coming on and so she asks Alex like is that it and she is what she meant is like it felt like something else is going to happen is there more and then what Alex heard was can we stop like is this over is it over (laughs) yeah and I thought that was so clever because like I can absolutely see Alex being so insecure and the fact that he thinks that he's like a burden to Roxana and that she doesn't want anything to do with him and that she's kind of he's inflicting himself on her would kind of I can see why he would interpret that because that was it was worded in an ambiguous way but also you can see like Roxana doesn't know really what an orgasm is so she's not gonna know what to ask kind of gets us into like talking about Roxana um, and how you kind of alluded to people saying that she's a princess. Um, It was just like one of the top reviews. I think, uh, I don't know if like a ton of people were really coming for Roxana, but that one review has like fueled enough anger in me. (laughs) But sorry, keep going. Yeah. So Roxana. No, I think, um, well, I don't even remember if I read that review, but I, I had written in the notes for this episode that I felt like people might be critical of Roxana and I wanted to defend her because like, I think people are very critical of heroines when they, they make a choice that they think they wouldn't make themselves, but they're also kind of are being incredibly ungenerous. Like, okay, Roxana is with George, who's obviously a cad. He's like ignoring her. He's clearly like brushing her off. He's not treating her the way that he should treat a woman that he loves and has been separated with for five years. And that's something that like a reader who has had multiple relationships and is reading a romance Mm -hmm. novel where George (laughs) is not the main character knows that he's like, yeah, it's obvious to us. But like for Roxana, who's never been in a relationship before um, and George is kind of like a little bit of a smooth operator like yeah I, how many of us have like met people like that and known them when they were younger and maybe less well equipped to to deal with people who aren't sincere but play at it yeah i, I she's young like their engagement takes from like when she, from when she's 18 to 23 
And he's gone for most of that time, too. So he can kind of curate his image through the letters he sends her. Like, I think maybe mm-hmm. she might have picked up on some stuff if he had been around for most of their engagement, at least. Yeah, I chalk it up to her youth and inexperience for why she... And I think, yeah, she genuinely is infatuated with him and doesn't have the experience necessary to be like, oh, these are kind of shallow feelings, actually. And she repeats throughout the book, and this leads to another miscommunication later with Alex, where she just thinks she's cold. She doesn't know that you're not supposed to feel that way when you kiss somebody. She doesn't like when George tries to kiss her. Um, She's kind of blinded by her infatuation with him. And then later, she tries to communicate that to Alex. She tries to be like, hey, by the way, I'm really cold, but it doesn't come off great. And it's just another thing that is a misunderstanding between them. Also, because she doesn't feel like that when she's kissing Alex. I think this would be a great book for people to read if they are like, I hate miscommunication. Because it's so, it's kind of over the top, the level of miscommunication that happens. But when I was reading it, it's like, it all makes so much sense. Like the (laughs) ambiguous, like... Sometimes you'll read something, like, I think misinterpretation is a type of miscommunication that people struggle with the most, where, like, one line, it's like, well, why didn't you read it the other way? That, like, makes so much more sense, like, have the good faith reading. Like, there are a lot of those in here, like, ambiguous meaning leads to misinterpretation. But there's all this character work to support why Alex thinks this way about himself, why Roxana thinks this way about herself. It works so well. Either you're going to hate this book if you hate miscommunication, or you're going to be turned around be like, oh, actually, miscommunication can be fun because um, there's so much of it in this book. But I feel like it's all of it's so justified. Yeah, the relationship is so cute. Like, yes. it's like you really, you really want. I when I was kind of like doing like a one sentence pitch on this, kind of like when I was putting it up on Instagram, I was like, this is my favorite type of miscommunication. One party's like, he thinks I'm annoying. The other party <laughs> is. I've loved you for years. It's like my absolute favorite thing. And so I think like when you think about it like that, that is a miscommunication, but that's also kind of like a really popular concept. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was just adorable. Um, I really liked it. And I am so glad you put both me and Emma onto this book. Yes. I'm definitely going to read more Alyssa Everett. Um, this yeah. was, I was really delighted with this, this one. I'm glad I stole it from <laughs> I'm sorry to introduce this author because she we have we'll add another author who still isn't like writing anymore. <laughs> but hopefully I'm fingers crossed uh she comes back. So we can jump to our next book. So Chell's recommended me Sunshine and Shadow by Tom and Sharon Curtis, um, publishing under the pseudonym Laura London. So I love Tom and Sharon Curtis. I know them from The Windflower, and so I read a bunch of their books after that. They kind of have like a really clever, kind of zany, over-the-top humor. And Sunshine and Shadow is a lot more tempered than the other books of them that I've read. But I loved this one so much. Uh, I immediately compared it to Flowers from the Storm after I read it. Which, at first, I wonder if that was because of superficial reasons. Like, you've got a Quaker character in one and an Amish character in another. But I think there is a surprising gentleness mixed with something a little bitter about religion in both books that I think puts them in communication with each other. So I thought Emma would enjoy this. And I also thought that picking Sunshine and Shadow for an episode of Reformed Rakes would be the only way I could get her to read a contemporary romance. <laughs> I did have to read two contemporary romance novels for this episode, yeah. which um, was <laughs> something new for me. Yes. Uh, but I enjoyed both. So um, Sunshine and Shadow is a contemporary novel, but it was written in 1986. So that's the setting that we're dealing with here. 
Alan Wilde is a movie director filming on location in Wisconsin. He's grown up in the industry, starting off as a successful child actor. He'd even won an Oscar as an early tween. As a director, he makes pulpy horror films, lauded if not totally high art. His latest is a love story with a monster element. His inner thoughts about this film are constantly reminding us that he's not trying to be Bergman. During the filming of a scene with the monster costume, so the stuntman in the monster costume, a woman comes out of a nearby forest and attacks the actor in the costume. Once she calms down, Alan speaks to her and realizes that she's a local Amish woman, Susan Peachy. They both feel immediately compelled by each other. Alan combines the directorial command of the room and movie star good looks, and Susan is both beautiful and otherworldly to Alan. Susan returns to her village, but Alan keeps thinking about her afterwards. He has the whole incident as filmed printed for the film dailies, like an impromptu screen test. When Alan's starlet for the film is hospitalized and he needs to recast the lead, he goes rogue and insists on offering the role to Susan, offering to pay her $30,000. Susan is a devout Amish widow and knows that taking the role is worthy of ostracization, though she doesn't understand many of the mechanics of movie making. She doesn't understand that people outside of Hollywood might even see the film. But she agrees because she wants to help her already ostracized sister, Rachel, financially. Rachel has moved to Chicago to go to school and to be a writer. Alan's casting of Susan is pretty specifically because he wants to sleep with her. Um, his attraction is immediate, and this is sort of in his inner thoughts. He initially has little qualms about the consequences that any of this could bring to Susan, sleeping with her or casting her in the movie. Susan's earnestness at experiences of the outside world could be treated really tweely by the, the novel. Alan and the reader both have to confront any attempts of looking at her life as simple because Susan is written with such steel, especially as her relationships with her family are more explicated. When Alan and Susan do start a romance, it's incredibly romantic, like completely over-the-top dialogue that made my jaw drop. But this is immediately contrasted with Susan's fall, driven by male community members who discover both her role in the film and her relationship with Alan. Alan struggles to understand that marriage to Susan does not solve the affair in the eyes of her community. Sleeping with him is something she could show contrition for, but marrying him would mean a full break. Susan chooses to make an attempt at contrition, but in front of her congregation, she speaks her truth, primarily that she does not regret her actions, and the bishop finds her confession wanting. This spurs her to sever her relationship with her community and go with Alan to Los Angeles. While in Los Angeles, Alan and Susan marry, but after the marriage, she starts to turn inward, struggling with all the newness and her lack of community. Alan remains an incredibly sweet husband, but he isn't sure what the solution could be for a middle ground. They both visit Chicago to see Rachel, Susan's sister, and a conversation with Rachel illuminates to Alan the stakes for Susan in leaving and what a return could even look like. Rachel herself left to pursue her career as a writer, but also after being sexually and physically assaulted by a group of non-Amish men as a young girl. Alan and Susan returned to Amish life, but not the conservative community that ostracized her. Instead, they moved to a more liberal community that does not ostracize over interfaith marriage and also moved her parents and siblings to this new community as well. Rachel visits the family as well, and there are hints to a more substantial re reconciliation on her part. I did love this book. Charles was right. <laughs> um, it, it did remind me of Flowers from the Storm, which I've also read on Charles's recommendation and is one of my top romances of all time. A lot of reviews of this sort of sum up my feelings about this. And I think even Chels put this in their review. This book has no business being this good. Like, <laughs> for like what it is, like even the first couple of chapters, I was like, I don't really know like why Chels recommended this. Like what's, it's a little awkward. It's like reading a book that's contemporary in the 1980s. There's some like very 
on the nose, like Phil making like sort of inside baseball jokes about like Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Spielberg that was like a little dated. Um, I was like, how does this hold up? Like, why do so so many people like this book? But basically, once Alan and Susan start spending time together, it's like you become obsessed with them. They're so sweet together in like the most believable while being over the top way. Like the things that they say to each other are so intense. Um, it really does read like a historical, like it could, you could take some of their dialogue and make like Alan a Duke and Susan like a, like a wallflower and it, it would totally work. Like it felt like reading a historical. <laughs> it's, it's so romantic. Like I don't, I don't know what I was expecting, but I was not expecting that. Maybe because of like what I had read from Tom and Sharon Curtis before this, um, I wasn't quite expecting to get slugged so hard in the third act. Like it was... Yeah, I, I don't know if it was because I read Chelsea's review beforehand, but I texted them while I was reading it. I was like, I just, I have this like pit in your stomach where you're like, something terrible is going to happen to Susan. Like it, there's no solution basically. And that's kind of what she keeps saying throughout the book is like, she, she, as she learns more about like the movie making process, because I think at the beginning when she agrees to it, she really thinks she can get away with it maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it becomes very clear, like basically people are going to find out like the nature of the film, her, her community is not so isolated that they never interact with non-Amish people. And also this movie is going to be a big movie. Like Alan is is a real movie director. People are going to know. She still moves forward. Um, and there's also this, this kind of part reminded me a little bit of Bodice Strippers, even though Alan is very sweet to Susan. She's like, she signed this contract to be in the movie and her sort of lack of legal knowledge makes her feel like she's like, I don't really know how I can get out of this. And and her brother and sort of people around her, like maybe you could get out of it. And Alan sort of acknowledges that he's like, if she, if she talked to a lawyer, a lawyer would be able to say like, she, she did not know what she was doing signing this contract, Mm -hmm. but she keeps moving forward. But that part made me think of bodice strippers because he's sort of coercing her in this like legal way, uh, even though he's being sweet to her, but you just have this pit in your stomach. Like how, how bad is it going to be for Susan? And then it's terrible for her. Like she, she just loses everything for this relationship. Um, but it, it's worth it for her because she's, she's sort of questioning um, the, the community because of what happened with her sister mm-hmm. earlier uh, in her life. Uh, and the way that they talk about Rachel, the sister is like this amazing through thread of like, you don't really know like what happened to Rachel because Susan doesn't disclose it to Alan for a long time. And so the reader doesn't know. And that's like a, like a, a really like compelling mystery of like what happened to Rachel. Like, I think even at the beginning, I, I thought maybe she was dead. Like they talk about like her, her, like she's died. And then it's like, Oh, she's not dead. Oh, she, she didn't leave sort of on good terms. She left on terrible terms, both on her terms and her parents' terms. Um, so that, that made the book like feel very, very historical um, in the sort of through threads. Yeah, I I loved Rachel's character, and I think she was also like the most heartbreaking character. Um, yes, and it was kind of uh, Rachel is actually kind of I think what made this feel a lot more a lot more like Flowers from the Storm, even though there's not like a sister character in Flowers from the Storm, but like Rachel is kind of like hits home the consequences. Like you, you as you were saying, like there's a lot about it that could feel very twee the way that you like look at Susan and her interacting with the world and uh, kind of like contrasting that with uh, her family and with her sister who's already left, who's had some pretty terrible experiences trying to explain to her family, like how she feels and what she wants out of life and, and, and just her kind of being on her own and not quite 
and not quite being there yet. Like Rachel still feels like she's really raw when we meet her, like the several times that we do in the book. I, yeah, I just, I just loved that character so much. And I know that you, you put uh, in the discussion notes, uh, Rachel's forgiveness quote, and that's definitely something. It's what she says to uh, Alan in the, their meeting in Chicago. So Alan meets Rachel in Chicago before Susan, because Susan and Rachel have not also not spoken because Susan would have been ostracized for reaching out to, to Rachel, even though she's, wants to support her uh, financially. So this, this is what Rachel says to Alan in their meeting. She says, I don't despise forgiveness anymore, even when it's not linked to justice. In fact, I can see there's all too little of it in the world. Um, so Rachel is saying this in the context of the men who assaulted her as a child or like young teen. She, she learns about the world that these men who are not Amish would have no obligation in their community to admit what they've done. And this like fills her with anger. And this is one of the sort of precipitating factors in her leaving in that both her sort of lack of support because her family doesn't really know what to do. And also realizing that these men are not going to be demanded like contrition the same way that Susan was demanded in the Amish community where they have to confess their sins in public. But she sort of realizes that she, she can give them forgiveness on her own terms completely. She doesn't, doesn't have to be attached to justice and this is really important for both Susan and Alan. Um, so something I didn't talk about in the plot description is that Alan, his child sardis, is really like directly linked to child abuse. They don't necessarily call it those terms in the book, though it is pretty explicit like that he was endangered by his parents and then he becomes uh, emancipated as a child star. And that's sort of his tragic backstory. And so he's also sort of thinking about like his career in terms of forgiveness. Like what is he trying to like resurrect what is he trying to forgive himself and his parents and this community that he's been raised in. So those sort of themes of forgiveness and the importance of forgiveness are really important for both characters, but Rachel is the fulcrum that sort of explains it to both of them. And then Rachel seeing her ostracism as kind of like her family, not extending her any forgiveness, any grace, mm -hmm. and seeing that uh, when she said that there's like not enough of it, like it mm -hmm. felt very personal in that way that she had seen that it hadn't been extended to her. Yeah, and Susan's sort of demand and also like the financial support, I think like it's sort of, I think it, Alan basically supports Susan's parents leaving. And th that like that's so impactful thinking about people like leaving these sort of like more conservative communities. It's like so often it's like you just can't leave. Like Susan's parents wouldn't have been able to leave. They wouldn't have been able to relocate to a more liberal community. And that there is like sort of hints throughout the book that her parents sort of are questioning aspects of the rigidness of the community they're in, but like, how are they supposed to move unless this millionaire from California supports them moving to a new farm? And then they're, so they're able to retain this like Amish identity and community in this new place while having a relationship with Susan. And that also allows them to welcome Rachel back in, even though it's more tenuous at the end between Rachel and um, her parents. I don't know if anything else we want to talk about. I mean, I put, wrote, listed other things out, but do, well, I guess other things about Tom and Sharon, did they write other contemporaries or were they mostly historicals and this was like the weird one? Yeah, so they did write other contemporary books. Um, some of them under the pen name Robin James. They actually had two, Robin James and Lauren London. Um, they wrote Lightning That Lingers uh, under their own names, Tom and Sharon Curtis. And they did that because Love Swept's whole thing was that you can't use a pen name. Oh. Um, and Lightning That Lingers is like um, a really kind of zany uh category romance with uh 
I think like a very prudish woman with the Dorothy Hamill haircut and the Cougar <laughs> Club star attraction. <laughs> that one was quite fun. But yeah, they wrote uh, 10 books over the span of 10 years and then stopped writing. Their biographies are like kind of fascinating. They had like all sorts of different jobs, lived all sorts of different places. They seemed like they seem like folks that were really, really in love and just really liked uh, doing things and meeting people and trying new experiences. When they had this book reissued, like a little less than a decade ago, a lot of their books got republished and reissued as ebooks. They did an interview with All About Romance where they kind of talked about writing another book, like maybe like a sequel or a series book for the Windflower, because there's a fan favorite character in the Windflower named Cat that everybody wants to get their own book. But we found out in researching this episode that uh, Sharon passed away last year. So uh, unfortunately, uh, that's just really sad. But uh, it sounds like she had like a really amazing life. And um, their books are just so good. Like most people don't write this many good books. So this book was so good. Yeah. Um, and just like the, the couple was so. It really, I mean, to compare something to flowers for me and Chels both to compare something to flowers from the storm is like high, high praise. But it's just that couple where it's like they're coming from totally different worlds. They do not share the same language, but they have this immediate interest in finding a shared language. It's also great if you don't want to deal with like someone being mean to a heroine. Like Alan's never really mean to Susan. He no. like has to reckon with the consequences of his actions for her. But there's not really a third act breakup. Like you hate third act breakups, which I will defend, but there's not really one in this book. They just sort of fall into this like immediate trust and like connection with each other. And the outside world is like all the factors of like why they can't be together. But also they're never really like not together. Like they just are together and like confront the whole world together. And it's very romantic. Um, so yes, I, I'm converted between both the books that I read for this. I'm converted on some contemporary <laughs> <laughs> Very specific circumstances. If they read like historicals and they're about baseball. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> the line. <laughs> the next one is going to be a book that I recommended. So I'm recommending Someone to Hold to, by Barry Bollig to Beth. And I recommend this Beth because I do recommend this book to everybody, to be fair. Like I'm always in people's comments on TikTok. Like, have you read Someone to Hold? Like, especially <laughs> when they're complaining about Barry Bollig. <laughs> um, Chels already has their favorite Mary Bollock, so slightly dangerous. So I'm gonna, I was gonna try and convince Beth to enjoy a Bollock by reading this one. I find Bollock really fascinating as an author. Nobody hits as high comfort reads for me, um, while also writing so many books that I think after I finish them, that was a waste of my time. <laughs> um, <laughs> she really has like a 50-50 hit rate with me, and it's either like favorites that I read all the time or ones I never want to revisit. Also, Beth likes thorny women characters, and Camille Westcott is one of the thorniest heroines ever. She's so spindly and spiky. We've also talked, all three of us, about sort of growing weary of Regency books with the Wallflower and Rake format, where the setting is ballrooms and assignations. This is a real, like, working class romance. Um, both hero and heroine are employed at the beginning of the book, and money, anxiety is a big theme of the book. Um, it's on the edges of aristocracy. It does have sort of the classic bollag, here's some money at the end of the book that solves some of your problems. But it's substantially less neat than a lot of her reconciliation plots, which is one of the reasons that I love it so much. So I thought Beth would have more comfort in that than some of the sort of tidy inheritance that Bollag does sometimes. Yes. And I will do a quick plot summary. So 
Camille Westcott has lost her title and fortune through the ascension of her previously unknown half-sister Anna Snow. Her father married Camille's mother while still married to Anna's. At the reading of her father's will, the situation comes to light, and Camille and her two siblings and mother are now unfit in society and illegitimate. Anna, someone desperate for family, attempts to share the family fortune. Camille says no and heads to Bath to work at the orphanage where Anna grew up. Enter Joel, the art teacher. He draws portraits for work, and Camille's grandmother commissions him to paint Camille and her siblings. Joel knows all about Camille's situation since he grew up in the orphanage with Anna and their best friends. He volunteers at the orphanage twice a week still, and along with doing the portrait, this means he and Camille interact quite a bit. And it's this is because the style of painting attempts to capture more than beyond a traditional sitting. Joel likes to get to know his subjects, do a few sketches, and then do a portrait from there. So he observes Camille at the orphanage and discovers she's a good teacher, although she doesn't feel this way about herself. One time they chat, and Joel informs her that Camille's brother-in-law bested her former fiancé in a duel. He tells her this to try to coax her into saying how she's allowed to feel something about how her former fiancé jilted her. There are several conversations like this where they become closer and, and more emotionally supportive of each other. Camille becomes attached to a baby, Sarah, at the orphanage. She holds her regularly and is startled by how positively she feels by this. Joel visits what he thinks is a potential client, Mr. Cox Phillips, but is actually his great uncle at the end of his life. Mr. Cox Phillips wishes to leave his money to Joel to spite his other relations who only care for him because of his money. Joel, overwhelmed, refuses and leaves. Later, as he relays the experience to Camille, she encourages him to go back and at least learn a few things about his family while he still has the chance. Joel goes back and receives a portrait of his mother. Camille comforts him and they sleep together. This leads to one of the more major miscommunications. He thinks she slept with him out of kindness, and he apologizes. And Camille liked the experience and can't believe he's apologizing. She slaps him. Mr. Cox Phillip dies. In the conversation where Camille supports him, they clarify where they stand after sleeping together. Camille tells Joel that by apologizing, he had cheapened the experience. From the slap, Joel assumed a seduction had occurred. Camille's family visits. Her mother says she's getting her dowry back since she and Camille's father were never technically married. She credits Anna with the idea, but she can accept the money because it really is hers. This prompts Camille to consider accepting money from Anna because it would help their relationship. Joel also ends up as the sole inheritor of the Cox Phillips fortune and estate. A few more things happen, but eventually Joel proposes to Camille and they adopt baby Sarah and one other older child. And they're all very rich at the end. <laughs> okay. So I'm glad I read this book. I did not have a good experience with Mary Balog before. But like Emma said, you either love it or you hate it, which is so crazy to me that an author can do that. <laughs> um, but I did. Yeah. you did mention the reconciliation plots, and I kind of wanted us to, to talk about it. I feel like family reconciliation is pretty big with Balog. She wants everyone to be happy and together at the end and not really leave any untidy ends. She loves nothing more than a child apologizing to their parents. Oh, that is like <laughs> she makes them do it all the time. And sometimes you don't you don't need to do that. Like I'm firm believer if you need to cut someone out of your life, cut them out of your life. Sometimes yeah. it's that's the graceful thing to do. Mary Bollock does not agree. 
children, if they even if they're not reconciled with their parents in this book, they will be eventually. Like, um, they they always are apologizing to their parents for things that their parents did. But what I like about this book and makes it easier for me to recommend to people is that the reconciliation kind of fails for mm-hmm. Joel. Like, he gets the money, but he doesn't get the relationship. Mm-hmm. And he, he like, is too late to go back to that. Like, he, he talks to Mr. Cox Phillips and he gets the portrait, but he, he's too mad to go back. And so he, when he goes back, like, it, the house is already shrouded in um, the, the, the black drapes. And he's like, I'm too late. I'm too late to, like, actually talk to this man about my mother. Because um, it's it, Camille's constantly sort of telling him, like, you should ask him. He's this is one of the only people you know who knew your mother. You should ask him questions about her. But that fails, and so because that fails, and also Camille has like failed at, or her father has died. It's just she can never can confront him about the bigamy, and this is like this like anger she holds on. So it, it's just it's not even though they get the money, and it's like that's very no one ends a Mary Bolly book poor. Um, <laughs> Like, it, it's a little bit messier and a little bit more, like, it's not as, like, fairy tale ending. And also, like, no one's apologizing to someone that hurt them, which is, is nice. I think we've talked about this before in, I think, especially in The Ruin of Evangeline Jones by Julia Bennett, that episode where grief isn't neat. Like, you can have these not-so-great relationships, and when that person dies, you still have, like, a lot of complicated feelings, and a lot of it is not resolved. And I, yeah, definitely see that with Joel and Camille. And I'd say Camille's relationship with her father has really influenced a lot of her thorniness. And like, it's uh, this interesting combination of where she's kind of desperate to be loved, but not willing to be loved at the same time, which I just really loved how, how Balog was managed to walk that line with her. And she just has like no sense of identity in this book. Like everyone else yeah. around her is sort of like, we're going to make the best of the situation. She has a younger sister, her mom are like, this is embarrassing, but like, we are still our own people. Camille is like, I was the perfect lady. I had the engagement that I wanted. I didn't love him, but it was like, we were going to be the society marriage. He didn't stand by me. And she's just like, okay, like I just have no identity now. Like there's no point. Like that's, that's it. And she's just kind of like going through motions and she, she's basically like depressed and has no interest in, forming an identity so she kind of forms herself as like the anti-anna who she sees as like the answer to all the problems and there's also the aspect that like joel was in love with anna growing up so he she's like oh if i'm an anti-anna joel hates me and like i can't have a relationship with him and he also sort of thinks that too he's like i he's like this is the opposite of anna like i was in love with anna for so long camille is is she's not warm she's not um, friendly she's not going to be a good teacher but camille becomes a very attentive teacher which is very sweet. And she she loves children. And all of a sudden she realizes like she loves kids and she's never thought about being a mother before because she was always focused on being like a, a proper lady. She never got to the next step. And in the future Westcott books, Camille and Joel have like 10 kids. Oh like, my God. Just, <laughs> like, every time you read a new book and you go to the like family tree at the beginning, it's like Camille and Joel have new kids. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> That's kind of because they have all this money. <laughs> I know. Just keep having children. Well, they adopt too at the beginning, so it must be. Right. I wonder if it's like a mix of kids they have, and then they just find another kid at the orphanage, and they're like, "We'll take I think this it is. one." It, too. I think it's like Camille is always pregnant, and they're like, "If someone wants to come live at the house with us, like they will be our child." And just very doting parents, and like whenever there's a Westcott family reunion, they just like bound in, and it's like, "Oh, those are Joel and Camille's children. Who knew that Camille would be such a good mother?" All the Westcots are like, she was kind of mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I kind of I kind of love 
the character growth Camille goes through. This title is kind of interesting, someone to hold, because there's like literal moments throughout the book where it's like, I feel like holding someone is just like this really intimate experience. I think, I can't remember what, what is upsetting Camille, but she just like asks Joel to hold her. It's just like right at the beginning of their relationship, but I was like this. I had my hands in front of my mouth as I'm like reading the book. <laughs> yeah, because they're like the only two people around that like are in, that know each other. It's yes. so good. Um but I would, this is one of the books that I put in the umbrella of, like, Emma Woodhouse experience a con- experiences a consequence book. Right. This is, like, if Emma Woodhouse was disinherited. Yeah, like, how she would What react. would Emma Woodhouse have to do if, like, she was no longer, like, the fanciest lady in her community? Yeah. It's, like, she would have this, like, identity crisis and, like, not know what to do um, if she didn't have access to all these things that were. And it really is, like, it, it would be so easy for Bali to write her as, like, heroine who like, has just lost money and, like, is upset about losing the privileges, but she just, like, doesn't have any sense of self. No, I think you're right. It's much more closer to her losing her identity because she's always relied on the rules for her conduct. And then once, like, she's like, oh, I'm actually not aristocracy, you know, she has to really reevaluate who she is. It's like she identified, like, her dad is, like, she was like, I'm doing this to get my dad's approval. Yes. And then my dad was bigamous, and it's like he... He ruined everything, and now he's dead, and I can't even be mad at him. It's so good. <laughs> it is very good. I don't know. I didn't know how to phrase this, so I'm just going to, like, word vomit out onto our podcast. Um, <laughs> but everyone seems to reluctantly inherit a pile of money at the end of this book. <laughs> um, after going through some character development, this is something I, f- I kind of feel like is a thing that happens where it's like, when you, when you don't desire wealth, then you're rewarded with it. I feel like it's kind of like a common theme I see in books. I don't know. I just, I think it's kind of strange, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's a very, that's definitely a bollock thing, but also like lots of things. It's like, yes. Oh, like we, we have this anxiety about like what these characters are going to do with their living. And it's like, well, Joel and Camille have jobs. Like they could just keep having their jobs. Right. Um, but Bollock can't let that lie. Yes. Um, it has to be extraordinary wealth. It can't just be regular living. Right. Like they're both, I think they become like, Almost as well. Maybe, like, so Anna marries a duke, so she's the wealthiest Westcott. Yes. But she's much wealth. Camille's now much wealthier than her siblings. Um, Right. Especially because it's, like, it's this, like, mercantile money rather than even, like, entailed old money. So I just love Camille Westcott. Um, Yes, we love love Camille Westcott. I, I, I will say, so I recommend this book to everyone. I also recommend it to everyone because the first book in the series, Someone to Love, is not good. Yeah, the book is not good. Skip that book. Skip that book. Also, if you read that book, you won't. You'll hate Camille. Um, because it took me like six months to read this book after I read this one. Right. After I read that one, because I was like, oh, Camille's the worst. And then I was eating my own words. Now she's like my favorite heroine ever. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll throw it to Chell or I guess to, back to you, Emma. If, oh, okay. Or if you because you're gonna, it, or yeah, recommend say why you recommended this to okay. to Chell's. So. The other one of my recommendations, I recommended to Chell's Tall, Dark, and Wicked by Madeline Hunter. And I recommended this to Chell's for very selfish reasons. So I like this trilogy by Madeline Hunter. It's called the Wicked Trilogy. There's Wicked is in all three um, titles. And it's about three brothers. The the Tall, Dark, and Wicked is the second book in the series and my favorite. Hunter really reminded me uh, in ways of Elizabeth Hoyt, who I know Chell's likes. Something about the stakes and also the, the sort of the way that the sex scenes relate to the couple's development. 
But Hunter does something in her narrative voice that I was really unsure of how I t- want to talk about. And I'm still unsure of. So I kind of wanted Chels's romance novel expertise to help guide me <laughs> so we could have a conversation about it. Especially in a modern historical romance, because I felt like Hunter was writing in sort of an older vein. The book is still structured as a dual limited POV, but there seems to be like a narrative distance between what the book thinks about the politics of the book and what the characters think. The arc that's going on in the book is not just between the characters' relationship, but how they react to the situation that they're put into. Hunter's also been writing books since the early 2000s, and even though this one was published in 2015, I think she has sort of a retro bent in her writing that I thought Chels would appreciate. All right, so I'm going to read the summary. Again, this is Tall, Dark, and Wicked by Madeline Hunter. So Lord Ewain Hemingford, referred to as Eves, is the second legitimate son of aristocrat, and he's also a barrister who's recently broken with his mistress. He's contemplating her replacement when a young woman appears at his house, a tall woman with striking eyes who is dressed as a servant. Padua Belvoir is a teacher, and she's just arrived from Newgate after visiting her incarcerated father. She's come to plead for Eve's assistance. She's estranged from her father, so much so that when she went to visit, he refused to properly speak with her or let her know what he was accused of. But Padua believes in his innocence. He's a scholar who's a bit absent-minded about the non-academic world, and thus, to her mind, wouldn't knowingly engage in criminal activity. When Eves finds out Padua's father's name, he realizes that he had already been asked to prosecute the case. He explains to Padua that she needs to enlist the help of a solicitor before a barrister, but even if she does that, he cannot be of assistance since he's already entangled in the case. Later, Eves finds out that Padua's father has been arrested and held at Newgate for coining, or forgery, and that he's likely to be hanged or sentenced to a prison hulk. The evidence against him is that they found the counterfeit money in his own rooms. While he's at the prison, Eve spots Padua. The jailer says that she first arrived the day before, bringing gifts, and that she attests that she's his daughter. Eve backs up this assertion, but takes note that Padua's involvement with her father is putting herself under suspicion as an accomplice in the counterfeit scheme, particularly because Padua's father is refusing to talk to the jailers. Eves finds Padua later and warns her to stay away from her father. Eves begins to have concerns about the Home Office's interest in the Belvoir case, noting that in the past he sent an innocent man to the gallows, and that the easy solution, which in the Belvoir case would be letting Padua's father hang, can lead to mistakes. When her employer learns about her father's situation, Padua is let go, and an infatuated Eves arrives to pick her up and take her to his family's London home. After it appears that someone is following Padua in town, Eves takes her to his family's country estate for protection. As Padua gets closer to his family, her relationship with Eves escalates, which is further complicated by the role Eves could potentially play in getting her father sentenced. She wants Eves to stay on the case because she thinks a different prosecutor will be less honorable. There's a lot of plot in the back half of the book, so to simplify it, here's what you mostly need to know. When they return to London, Padua and Eves find out that her father is the landlord of a brothel. She discovers that her father is involved in the counterfeit scheme, roped into it by some men who threatened to expose his relationship to the brothel. Eves and his brother set out a trap for the counterfeiters that enlisted Padua's father, and Eves, who has never successfully resigned as a prosecutor, is able to go soft on Padua's father now that the people who blackmailed him are incarcerated. 
He then asks for Padua's hand in marriage, and she accepts. Uh, so yeah, I did really enjoy this, and I do kind of see what you're talking about uh, with the Elizabeth Hoyt comparisons. It's kind of hard to put your finger on, so I also kind of know why you're you're having kind of like like it feels different, but you're it's like yeah. a little hard to I I don't want to say it's like for plot reasons necessarily although there is kind of like this isn't a ballroom it's a regency but there are no ballrooms um i think it could also be uh um kind of as you mentioned uh there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a remove from what you think that hunter believes versus what her characters believe and i was kind of paying attention to that because you had mentioned that to me before um, so there's a big kind of source of shame and the reason why Padua's father doesn't tell her what's happening and why he doesn't like try to save himself once he's arrested is that shame that comes from being the landlord of a brothel like that would ruin his good name. And Padua uh, kind of has internalized this same kind of mindset. I think some of it might be from being like, a proper lady where she works at a fancy school where any sort of relationship to uh, criminality is reasons for her to be discarded of. And I also think it's maybe just kind of like one of those things where she has a prejudice and, um, and it's not like a neat arc. There's no Padua thinks poorly of sex workers and brothels. And then she makes a full 180. It's kind of a little bit, more messy where she's kind of she's gotten a little a little bit better about it but it's not quite to like the place where you would think if you were reading a book where the book needed to reflect your own morality back to you and I think that might be something that Hunter is doing with in several different ways where she trusts that you understand that you can make your own conclusions like you don't need to have your politics reflected back from Padua. Yeah, and it's like there's some things that Padua, Padua says in the book that like are, would normally be like such red flags for me. Or like I'm sort of hyper vigilant about how characters talk about sex work um, in books because so it's so fraught so often across the genre. And then, but something about the way that Hunter like couches them, I sort of had the sense pretty early on that like we were going somewhere with that. And she does. It's like the the sex work or characters Padua meets. I keep wanting to call her Padova, which is how you say it in Italian, but um, Padua. <laughs> it's like she has to like reckon with meeting like these characters and like they become like real people to her. Um, and again, like it's it's not so much of the plot that you. It's like it's not a book about Padua like working through her like hangups about sex work. It's just like this underlying um, thing that she has to process in order to like get her father safe um and i liked that it was, a, it was sort of like an element of world building and i also like that the heroine is the one who sort of has these hang-ups um i think that sort of dichotomy of like oh like talking down to sex workers is sometimes like i think a hero has to process like he'll he'll talk down to sex workers and then reveal like the heroine was actually dressed up like a sex worker the whole time and it's like oh my god she's in a brothel um and that process is going on there but the that the heroine is like sort of has this internalized misogyny that's just sort of like present and she has to work through, but isn't like the main arc of the book. Um, it sort of fleshes out the book, but it, it was just like the weird tension. I, I'm not sure if I've read another book where it seems like the book is judging 
the character so acutely so early on um, for this like hang up. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely see that. And I also kind of see um, Eve's kind of has like a similar thing, which I think is a lot more common when you see like a character who is a man and who kind of like has like this very flippant way of talking about women and thinking about women. And then later, all of a sudden, it's not okay because he has a woman (laughs) that he's interested in and like that he respects because he is interested in them and I think that is something that you do also kind of see with Eves even though Eves isn't necessarily an unkind person at all throughout the book but like it's kind of funny like when he first meets Padua uh when she comes to ask for his help there's like this moment where he he gets uh he's summoned to the room where she is he like opens the door he sees her crying and she says she's wearing a servant's dress and he's like what if I just close the door and leave? Like, what if I just get out of here? Which is not a very gallant thing. Um, And then also, so there's kind of like that way that he, and like thinks about women and then also kind of like his ideas about justice are kind of fraught and not very neat. And it's kind of like when we were talking about morality and Unmasked by the Marquis, it was kind of like that where it's like that you have that hard moral line until someone you care about. And that's kind of like what it felt like for for Eves, even though his reticence to like go hard on being a prosecutor against her father is is a lot of it is for his feelings for Padua, but um there's also he has that memory of where he had um and he was responsible for an innocent man getting hanged. Yeah, I like this. I read this book initially for my Newgate project, and it's one of the rare ones where the person who was in Newgate, like, definitely did the thing they're accused of. Like, he was involved in this, like, coining scheme. Um, His, like, moral culpability is definitely much lower than the people who were sort of blackmailing him into it. But he, like, he did do the thing. um, Basically, he, like, makes the calculation and decides to go along with it rather than be blackmailed. Um, And so it's, like, that sort of, like, what's the difference between, like, a moral harm and a criminal harm? It's like, he did he did do the thing he was accused of. He's not innocent. But should he be punished? Especially at, like, the coining at this time is one of those crimes that's a capital punishment. So, like, the stakes are really high for her father. And it, it's nice that... that, that I, li- I like ones where someone has actually done the crime rather than has been... Um, is, like, falsely accused. Because, like, false accusations... That's sort of, like, one specific plot. But when you have to, like reckon with someone actually doing the thing they're accused of it just makes for sometimes more interesting arcs especially in, in the Newgate plots yeah and this uh in that way it reminded me it reminded me so much of the duke by galen foley um because like the heroine of that book her father is uh thrown into fleet uh for debt and it's kind of a similar situation where you find out that her father there's something that he could have said there's something that he could have done to like communicate to his daughter and like get himself out but he's kind of like a f- absent-minded scholar who's too prideful and so there's kind of like a lot of similarities there and that one else was also published in 2000 so there's kind of like that other yeah i want to read older hunter books because i wonder like where she came from because this this is one of her latest books that she published i don't know she thinks she's writing anymore but she does she is really prolific mm-hmm. so and so much of this book reminds me of older romances that I've read. The the brothers are all kind of like bodice ripper-y. Like they're sort of cast in this like very wicked way. These are not bodice rippers, but they are like looming in the interactions with women. Mm-hmm. Um, though this is a great series. Like I love this sort of conceit in a romance novel when 
like they're like a bunch of brothers and like they each sort of like fall in line and get married like the first brother is really wicked and a rake and then he makes an appearance in the second book and he's like come on like you gotta treat women better man and then by the third book there are two of them being like you gotta be nicer to your lady dude (laughs) it's like two books ago you were you were the wicked one um i just love that it's like you become a wife guy and you forget that you were ever like wicked it's like you've been married for a week man like (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're always giving advice to each other like very like patronizingly and that that there's a good payoff with these three brothers in the third book um so this is my favorite one in the series Mm -hmm. but i've read all of them and they're they're fun so i would like to read older older hunter books because i think she just has like an interesting interesting voice and plotting i know she wrote some medieval ones and i love when people do medieval things and also regency i love the way that those like skills translate across across time periods yeah and before we finish with this book i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about something that's like completely really irrelevant to the plot but that i love it anyways this is such a minor plot point but we were talking about the brothers and um the older, the eldest brother Lance gets into a duel. And so something that I'm kind of like obsessed with about duels and historical romance is that a lot of times, cause there's like the fictional duel is so different from how real duels happen for it. Because for a lot of narrative reasons, like you need the duel to, to either like occur or the heroine to interrupt the duel quite dramatically. And so, but there's like an actual proper like duel etiquette that happens in this book that I was like, oh my God. So (laughs) what usually doesn't happen in historical romance books is that the second doesn't do anything. Like the second, (laughs) they name the second, the second shows up and they're like, hey, we're meeting tomorrow. And then it just (laughs) happens. But the second's job when a duel is called is the second's main job is to stop the duel from happening at all. (laughs) And that's like what actually happens uh lance the eldest brother gets into a duel and then he calls eves and he's like hey you gotta get me out of this <laughs> and, so, and so eves like he's like oh, all right and then he's like okay we gotta negotiate and blah 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 and he's a barrister so it's like perfect second material i think like eves <laughs> even mentions like he's been second like many times before <laughs> and and um, yeah, I think this only time I've ever seen this happen in a book is in uh, Unlightened by Joanna Chambers, where they kind of actually negotiate. So yeah, I just wanted to mention that before. <laughs> I was convinced after I read this that Madeline Hunter had a JD. I'm always guessing which romance novelists have gone to law school, mm-hmm. but because Eves is such like a lawyer dude, like <laughs> like reading him, I was like, this is like guys I went to law school with, like the way that he talks and like his like certain charm that's also like abrasive and argumentative. I was like, he, she knows lawyers, and I think she doesn't have a JD, but I, it was like, I feel like she knows, like, either she knows someone who's a lawyer, her husband's a lawyer, her sister's a lawyer, she knows someone who's a lawyer, because this guy is so lawyerly. The only other one that I've read, like, a lawyer character is Nick from um, the... A Woman Entangled. A Woman Entangled, yeah, that, he is also very, like, lawyerly in a way, that, like, I, it's like, he just reads like a real lawyer, but Eve's feels like a real lawyer in his even in his like romantic role um, he feels very very lawyerly shout out to eves <laughs> <laughs> okay i will jump to fire season by katie casey i recommended this to emma um emma has this thing where she'll be like blank is a romance novel and she's a big fan of baseball. And honestly, baseball is a romance novel. <laughs> I'm convinced. And like Charles said, this is the only way we could get her opinions on some contemporary <laughs> books we love. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
So Fire Season by Katie Casey is the second book in the Unwritten Rules series and is a romance between two baseball players, Charlie Braxton and Reed Giordano. Charlie is one of the best starting pitchers in baseball, and Reed is a middle-inning relief guy back up in the majors after some personal trouble led to a stint in the minors. Both men are dealing with off-the-field troubles. Charlie is in the divorce process with his wife, who is still on friendly, if strained, terms. Reed is a recovering alcoholic. His alcoholism affected both his performance and professionalism on his previous teams. The book begins with Reed being traded to the major league team in Oakland. Reed is charming to other players and media and a little brash to coaches, but quiet, intense Charlie is taken with him immediately. The combination of Charlie's divorce, which he is slowly disclosing to members of the organization, and Reed's temporary housing being a hotel with easy access to alcohol leads to Charlie offering Reed a room in his house. Reed is comfortable with his sexuality, out to his family, if not the public, seemingly in part because he isn't famous enough to get that height of attention, plus his destructive behavior during his active addiction takes up any news discourse about him. The in-universe level of homophobia of the major leagues was something I wasn't quite sure about in this series, but it seems to be lower than in real life. Charlie is new to thinking about himself as bisexual, but Charlie is really settled in his career. He has a huge contract with a lot of player-favorable clauses, where Reed's situation is much more tenuous. One of the best scenes in the book is when they're together waiting for the trade deadline to pass, which captures the fluidity of these players' careers that never get locked into something bigger. That unsure nature of his work, both in his contract and his performance, links to Reed's recovery story, which takes up the bulk of his POV. He has a therapist he calls on emergencies, and as he meets new people on the team, he seems to be testing them for safety as a, in his support network, and Charlie becomes a part of that quickly. I should also say that Reed is Jewish, and this is a big part of his identity and his connection to Charlie, since Charlie, though not Jewish, is earnestly interested in how Reed frames his identity around his religion and ethnicity. Charlie's coming to terms with his sexuality is not really marked by anguish, but the timeline of the reckoning with it out loud is accelerated when his soon-to-be ex-wife, Christine, has to evacuate their previously shared home because of California wildfires and stay with Charlie and Reed. So another person is thrust into their quiet early relationship. And just a note, there's a lot of baseball in this book. We get detailed descriptions of both Charlie and Reed's performances. We know how the elephants do in the playoffs. They make them and then get eliminated in the first round. And those performances have a big impact on the narration. It's not so literal that what is happening on the field is a synagogue of the relationship arc, but there is a direct connection between the professional lives of these men and then how they react to the personal situations that follow. So I really liked this book for a lot of reasons. I, I do love baseball. I'm always saying that my favorite baseball team, the Philadelphia Phillies, are a romance novel. Um, <laughs> they just, they, there's a lot of like homosociality in baseball. I think because there's a lot of downtime in baseball. I think maybe other, uh, compared to other sports, like, half the time you're sitting on the bench waiting for your team's turn. So you're like sitting there like waiting for one of your teammates to hit a ball. So you're like goofing off with each other in in the dugout and you it play, like fans get to see this. And so there's a lot of like male male like friendships and sort of intimacy. And I think it and also they're not wearing like any sort of protective gear on their faces. And so you get to see like players personalities a lot. So it's very easy to sort of romanticize and like become endeared to these player friendships in real life. So it makes sense that you sort of like look at them and you're like, oh, like this, they have a lot of chemistry. You could put them together in a romantic relationship. So I love baseball. Baseball is a romance novel. And so Beth and I were talking about this um, earlier and we were talking about how sort of the structure of the book feels like a baseball season in certain ways. Um, so there are a few sort of structural things that I notice. I always think about like how things are written, um, like how, what, is an author choosing to 
be like the conceit of the book. And so this book is something I've never read before. I don't know if it's more common in contemporary romance novels, because again, I've read about two. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This one, it's present tense. And so you're in Charlie and Reed's head in the present tense the whole time. And it, it really threw me off. It took me a few chapters to get used to. But the way that, like the function for it as the reader is that you get so much processing in ways that I feel like you don't get in like sort of the past tense, like this thing happened and then this thing happened. It's like, they're all using present tense verbs. And so you're feeling them like think. And so much of the plot is inside their minds. Like, so read reckoning with his like active addiction um, and like dealing with his, uh, his therapist and calling her and also like building out a support network in this new place. And then Charlie thinking about his sexuality, um, because he, he never really thought about his sexuality before he meets Reed. He's sort of realizing that he's bisexual. And so you're getting both of these, like, revelations in real time. And so you get really, like, intimate – I think the reader gets really intimate relationships with both of them. And then also that, like, that conversations they have with each other, you're like, oh, they're disclosing things that I just found out in their minds <laughs> with each other. So I don't know, Beth, if you've read other books that take on that but or if this is, like, unique to Katie Casey for you. Oh Yeah, only Katie Casey – I think I've read has done the present tense narration. And I think it does lend itself well to what she's trying to accomplish. As we were talking about before, like, even trying to explain the plot, like, it's just a lot of a slow burn romance and people feeling their feelings and thinking them through and processing them and talking a lot of conversations in this book. Like that's, that takes up your run time. (laughs) I read two books that don't really have third act breakups. Yes. Um, like Charlie and Reed like just sort of fall into a yeah. relationship together. And then the big question is sort of like, is it's not even are we going to work as a relationship? It's more like is, where Re- where Reed is going to go. Like, yeah, it's just like how, how do we make um, this work is the big question. Yeah. Right. Because it seems like Reed is not going to stay on the elephants. After, first, they're worried about the trade deadline and then they're worried about the end of the season and like Reed's going to go somewhere else. Like how are we going to make this work? And it's like Charlie comes out to his family Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, they sort of have to reckon with that, but it's not like, I'm not going to come out to my family to hide you. It's just sort of a decision he makes. Yeah. So the, the stakes in the, the, uh, book are much more about the baseball and like Reed's performance because Reed is sort of trying to earn his place on the team. And he's just sort of wondering like, what's my identity outside of baseball if I can't do this anymore? Because it's just, and Char- Charlie, it's hard to emphasize how famous Charlie is yes. in this book. Charlie is like I couldn't even think as I talked to my sister about it and my sister is also a huge baseball fan we were trying to think of like what baseball player is this famous and we we thought maybe Justin Verlander is the one we could we could think of because Charlie his big anxiety is people finding out about his divorce yes like he's keeping it from the media he's 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 sort of like soft launching it to members of the organization and they're like doing a press release and Julie and I were thinking about like which baseball player would national news care if they got divorced? And we thought of one. <laughs> like, they're just not that famous. But because especially it's not an acrimonious divorce. But Charlie's just really famous. He's very wealthy. And he, Beth talked about this in her review of the book. Charlie has all this like baseball privilege. Yes. Um, that both uh, Reed and um, his soon to be ex-wife, Christine, call him out over. That Charlie just doesn't have to think about things at his workplace. Not only because he's so talented, but because he has this contract that is so favorable to him. Like he doesn't, he can't be traded unless he wants to be traded. He has all this guaranteed money that he's sort of forgotten what it's like to have this like hustle that Reed has to have. And that's also, that's also like a tension in their relationship where like Charlie's trying to be empathetic, even though they're in the same career, 
but Charlie just doesn't know how to process these things. And Christine calls him out for um, like covering things up with his money. Like he buys her things. He buys her a new pottery studio. He buys her a car. He buys he buys read things thinking that that will like solve the disparity. But what actually he needs to do is like sit and feel his feelings. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> I love how Casey writes this because she makes baseball seem so like working class. And like, mm-hmm. I can really see the class structure, mm-hmm. like applying like a historical romance lens yes. <laughs> to baseball. I feel like, yeah. How are these people relating to each other? Who is like higher up on the team and like, what can you get away with and read? Yeah someone who's just like hanging on by like a thread he t- he does not command the same level of privilege that charlie has but i like also at the end reed he works on his pitching like he's a relief pitcher and he works on his pitching on his own that's like something that's important to him like charlie offers <laughs> and i think they may have like a few scenes like that i don't remember but i think it just it turns romantic very yes quickly. like they're like <laughs> I'll help you with your pitching. And then they just like kiss. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I really like that Casey makes it feel like, yeah, very working class in her other books. Tr- players get traded all the time. And I feel like in other sports romances I read, people just like stay on their teams forever. I don't know if maybe that's like more unique to baseball that you just kind of like, hey, pack your bags. Or go I think it may be a Casey thing. Yeah. Where it's like Casey is like accurately reflecting like, yeah like the the sports nature where it's like just very tenuous and it's like in baseball it really does have this sort of like two class system where the disparity between the two classes is astronomical yes like there are definitely baseball players who make more money than especially like they have really long contracts because baseball players can play for a lot longer um mm-hmm. pretty at the same level if they don't get injured compared to like football players yeah but it's like they make more money than god yeah, and then, but the minor minor league teams, like if you're going, yes, they're severely exploited. Like how much they play, yeah, they're paid seasonally. They were only recently unionized this past season. They got unionized, um, like and MLB has this like incredible union, and it's like this, uh, it's this, um, like they like players strike in baseball all the time, but the minor leagues were not unionized. So when uh, Casey was writing this, Reed would be like in a union if he was in the majors, but if he gets relegated to the minors, he loses all the union benefits. Um, and he gets seasonal pay. He doesn't get paid in the off season. He has to pay for training. All those like off, like all the like rehab he has to do if he does. He's not on a team. He has to support himself doing. So that it really does read like very historical in that way, where it's like there's like the person who cannot understand the sort of class disparity. And I think the it's also Charlie's backstory is that he was kind of like a wonderkin. Like he he's he just sort of became. He just was always the best at baseball and just uh, which is not always true for starting pitchers because sometimes you have to like grow into your body but he just he did he just didn't have to struggle with that aspect of his life but it also like covered up some of his um personal issues but yeah I was, what, I was wondering what your thoughts were about the sort of like au for like queer storytelling i compared it to my sister to like schitt's creek where yeah people ask like schitt's creek they're or maybe i did that you told me that maybe i just barge no i don't <laughs> remember i we did okay. talk about this before i know what you're saying where it's like especially this book I feel like the other two books there's like a higher level of like homophobia and like the mm-hmm. first book mm-hmm. um one of the main characters like really afraid to like come out mm-hmm. but yeah it's an interesting balance because sometimes I think of like sci-fi where people sometimes look to sci-fi novels as like hey this is inspirational like maybe we can pattern our world after a much more positive future so I don't know if that's maybe something Casey's trying here, where it's like, 
yes, homophobia exists. She acknowledges it, but it's not like at the forefront of the book. It is kind of an yeah. alternate alternate universe where you can kind of allow these baseball players to be. Right, like Charlie and Reed don't, they, they're not like coming out to the world. No, yeah. But they also do disclose like two people in the organization. Yes. Um, like they're, they're members of the team, they're members of the management who know about the relationship and about their queerness. And so that, uh, and so it's like in, in baseball there, I don't think there's ever been an out like playing player or there isn't, there isn't currently. And, but there sometimes in the minor leagues and it's always like huge news and it's baseball has like this sort of fraught relationship because also, I mean, Casey has tweeted about this before. It's like, there's just like a, a volume of players and they're in this like intimate situation where they make these bonds. It's like, it's unrealistic to say that there are no queer baseball players, but it does still have this like fraught relationship. And if a player came out or was dating another player, it would be really big news. But I liked that. It, it sort of makes for, I liked, I was, I, when I was reading it, I, I was sort of, as I was picking up sort of that thread of like sort of the stakes that Casey gives us, I, I, I had to get used to the idea that like something terrible wasn't going to happen. I was like, oh, like they're going to come out and like they're going to be kicked off the team or like be bullied off the team. And those aren't really the stakes that Casey's interested in exploring. Um, but I liked that, that it was sort of more, um, it, it, it allowed her to do something different with these characters. Yeah, or else it's always going to be the fear of like coming out or being like discovered is always going to be like at the forefront, I right. think. It like allows it for me to be a different story. Yes, yes. Okay, um, yeah, so I recommended Bat Me by Jennifer Cruzy to Beth uh, because Beth reads the most contemporary romance out of all three of us. So when I found out she hadn't read Bat Me, I was like, I need your take on this right now. Uh, so there's this thing in Romancelandia right now where the word rom-com is hotly contested because people feel as though they're being applied to contemporary romances that aren't funny or general fiction that's light on the romance and the humor. So Bet Me is a bona fide rom-com by one of the titans of the genre, Jennifer Cruzy. And when I first read it, it felt like a revelation to me. It reminded me so much of Bridget Jones' Diary, which I know that's also a book series, but I've only seen the movie. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're kind of like came out around the same time, like early 2000s. And that's kind of a movie that I dearly, dearly love with almost the exact same caveats that I have for <laughs> Bet Me. It's... I. I just, it's just like book that I, I want to talk about. I want to contextualize. And I think like once, when I first read it last year and rereading it now, I think I've kind of like changed my approach to talking about and thinking about the book a little bit. So I'm, I'm very excited to get your thoughts on this. Yes. And we will start with a quick plot summary. Min Dobbs's ex-boyfriend, David, bets Calvin Morrissey, he can get Min to sleep with him within a month. Several bets are thrown around and David bets $10,000 that Calvin can't sleep with Min. Cal shoots him down, although in a way David thinks this bet is still on. Min overhears the next bet, which is $10 he can't get Min to go to dinner with him. Even though she finds Cal handsome, Min's understandably put off by this bet. She decides to go through with a dinner to evaluate whether he could be her plus one for her sister's wedding. Now that David's out of the picture, she needs a date. Her overbearing mother had really liked David. Min says yes when he asks for dinner and then proceeds to deflate him a bit when he amps up the charm. They decide to never see each other again. But they keep running into each other, and when Cal's nephew takes a shine to Min, this increases the number of their this increases their encounters. 
Despite their escalating attraction, Min holds up the relationship because she wants Cal to bring up the bet. This is very much a rom-com. Cruzy's characters banter and engage in hijinks, but they're all relatable people doing human things. For example, Cal's ex, Cynthia, is this over-the-top relationship guru who tries to use psychology to power through her breakup with Cal. What she does is a bit much, but the emotions behind it are trying to rationalize Cal's terrible behavior to her. Like, she wants to believe that he still loves her, and he, he just doesn't know it. David is perhaps the most over-the-top, but I get him. I don't like him, but I've seen people like him before. He goes after Min with a mix of Cynthia's insistence. He goes after Min at Cynthia's insistence, and then after watching Cal find value in Min and connect with her, that's when he's like, wait a minute, I actually want Min back. The heart of this book, though, is Min and Cal coming together, and honestly, I just wanted them to kiss and hang out and show up for each other. A lot of people call this book of its time. It was published in 2004, so that's true, but all books are products of their time. So I just wanted to talk about that aspect of it. And I say that because there is like a lot of fat phobia in this book, like Min's counting calories, she's on a diet, her mother only seems to communicate through diet comments to her daughter. So yeah, I just wanted to get your perspective on that, Charles. Yeah, so I I wonder if people who were like tweens in the early aughts, like kind of like this really hit something for them. Like I'm sure like for people who were adults too, but like, oh God, for me, like I remember so much. Like I'm like, I remember these people. I remember when people used to talk like this all the time. Like I remember how everyone was kind of like, literally everyone was talking about diets. Like it was just kind of like, it's something that we've kind of like hidden a lot better now. Like Mm -hmm. the obsession with thinness has never really gone away, but it was just like so in your face extreme in the early aughts that it was like, and that's kind of also like where the Bridget Jones diary comparisons come to, because that's also like a rom-com that's kind of like dealing with uh, your body and like what matters and 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 it's kind of in a way that's like maybe not necessarily like fully comforting but yeah so I think that's kind of like what I was talking about too when I was talking about my approach to bet me because when I read it last year I was like I like this a lot this is really good some of the stuff in here makes me feel weird and not because uh Jennifer Cruzy is being fat phobic or that there's Or that, like, there's ever, or that, like, Min loses weight at the end. Like, that's not what's happening, but it's just kind of, like, the the constant reference to diets and carbs. And that's just something that I think maybe is kind of a trigger for me in, like, a little bit of a way where I'm just like, oh, I don't want to read this, but I adore this book. And so I was trying to contextualize it and kind of trying to talk about it and how, like, good I thought it was and what I liked about it. But I think I just kind of got stuck on that, which makes sense because it's, like, a big theme for the book. So when I when I took it to TikTok and I was talking about it, I was hedging so much. I was just like, you've got to remember, this is 2004. This is like what it was like. And then I think what really changed my perspective or like not necessarily changed my perspective, but changed the way that I'm approaching this book, because I think we should talk about how good of a rom-com this is because it's amazing and it has really great characters where so many people came into my comments and were just like, this book changed my life. Like this was the first book with a fat character where it was nice. Like this is, this book is incredible. And I'm like, yeah, I, I think kind of like, we all know what Cruzy's doing. Like Mm -hmm. we're smart. Like we don't need to like attribute any sort of like 
over, I, I, I get, I get the impulse because I had the impulse, like where you want to hedge and be like, oh, this might not feel the way it would in 2023, which is so funny that I have that for a contemporary romance because I never <laughs> have that for historicals. I said this in one of, in my review of the book and I kind of feel like almost if you add a hundred years, then almost this book is like way more worthy of study because it is just like a perfect capsule of 2004 and like attitudes and how people talked about like bodies and like diet culture so i understand it's not like fun reading min's mom but she's never like where she's just like purposely gets her a bridesmaid's dress that's too small for her daughter and is like a terrible person but we're not made to we're not supposed to be sympathetic to min's mom like cruzy doesn't write her that way (laughs) at least and I think it's just because, like, it's so, like, it's written in a language that, like, we, like, is just, like, a, maybe kind of, like, tied to, like, rough memories for some people yes. of a certain age that, yes. like, I think maybe that's why. Because, like, there's a Tessa Dare book that has, like, that exact same setup where the mom, is it Say Yes to the Marquis, where the mom buys the dress that's too small? I think so. That's her plus size heroine. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it's clunky. And it's, like, like crunchy to read but it's also the mom sucks in that book (laughs) yeah yeah and it's like and but it's not like uh the i have to watch my carbs or my calories or whatever and so i think that's kind of like maybe why in some ways like that i didn't notice it as much there where for here it's kind of like that scene when uh you find out bridget jones weight in the movie and you're like oh my god really this is what you're worried about like know that i didn't need to know that (laughs) (laughs) i think this book is so freaking good like I I think that if anyone's a little bit nervous about that I do understand but um I think it's just so great honestly I think it's really good yes and I do want to talk about Cal and Min I think what really drives the book is their relationship they're just so fun like their comments back and forth you really feel the tension. I feel like Cruzy is such a good writer that she makes it seem easy. That it's just easy to that these two characters come together in the way that they do. And the side characters, there's a pretty large cast of side characters. And I feel like that's maybe, I don't know if this is like a hallmark of rom-coms, but it feels like they have really fleshed out lives. Like they have, each have a group of friends and each have families kind of like outside of each other. And that is given even point of view, like there's conversations that we have between like Cynthia and David that is like happening where they're like hatching their plan about trying to <laughs> to get Min and Cal back, which I just found so interesting. I don't know if modern contempor- like modern contemporaries are really doing that. Yeah, I have a little bit less insight onto that just because I I don't read as many contemporaries as you do. Um I feel like it's been a minute. I feel like there's often, like, each main has, like, their best friend or, like, family member. That's mm-hmm. kind of, like, the main support. Like, it's not as, like, right. fleshed out as this, but I don't know. Maybe other contemporary readers might be able to offer some examples. <laughs> yeah. I do. Um, I do kind of, like, I think of this thing that you say all the time whenever we send you a TikTok that we hate where <laughs> Beth will just be like, yeah, it has the cadence of a joke, but they didn't say anything <laughs> funny. Like, I think that's kind of like yeah. how I feel sometimes reading rom-coms where I'm just like, 
I get that this is supposed to be cute and smart, but I really don't like this. And I kind of like chalked it up to like, oh, I like anachronistic dialogue. Like I like historicals, but like I, Cruzy is just amazing. I, Cal and Min, like from the minute they meet, they're just like, they're at odds with each other. And in a way that's just like, playful and funny Mm -hmm. um where they're not quite obsessed with each other yet or they're kind of like orbiting each other there's like this like conceit where they keep accidentally and they keep like saying goodbye to each other and then they like meet again and so like they say goodbye at one point cal's just like see you tomorrow or whatever like it's just (laughs) like there's the the references so like cal really likes elvis costello and uh min really likes elvis presley and that's like a battle that they have, like, which is the better Elvis, which is like such a weird like discussion that I didn't <laughs> think that I would care about. Um, and then there's one point where he uh, he buys her an Elvis Presley greatest hits album, which is such a, such a dorky gift because like not even like an actual album, just like the greatest hits. But she loves <laughs> it because she's the type of person who, who has greatest hits albums. Mm-hmm. And um She's like, oh, I thought you would give me Elvis Costello. And he's like, why would I give you something that I like? <laughs> yes, I know. It's so adorable. <laughs> They're, uh, it's just it's just so freaking cute. Like, it's um, just like an absolute joy to read. I think I can buy into the hijinks of this book more. Sometimes when I've read other contemporaries and a, an author is trying to pull off a scene that I'm like, this is, did you actually picture this in your mind? Like what this actually <laughs> looks like? There's one, I don't know if I want to like on a public platform and be like, I didn't like this book. <laughs> but I tried, I tried to read Dating Dr. Dill. Um, it wasn't for me. If you liked it, that's great. But there was this scene and that's when I stopped reading it. When the two mains are like chasing each other around a ta- like a, like an island in a kitchen and I was like, they're both 30. Like, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't suspend my disbelief. It was just so silly. It was too silly for me. And I'm like, mm, no. So <laughs> I feel like Cruzy is pretty good at like, there's still some like uh, over the top moments here. Like when everyone shows up at the end, um, like David goes and like calls everyone in Min's orbit. And it's just like, Cal's a terrible person. He's only going to sleep with her because of this bet. And so like everyone shows up at the house at the end. Like that's over the top and silly, but I like could buy it. Cause like I knew David by that point. So yeah, I liked <laughs> David and what was her name? Cynthia. I like yeah. the Cynthia's like weird. Uh, so she's like a dating expert or relationships expert or something. And her whole shtick is that she's writing a book about being in relationships and she needs that wedding photo with her and Cal. Yeah. She needs to be in a relationship. (laughs) She needs to be in a relationship with Cal specifically. And so like the whole, so she's doing this, like, you know, this like, um, pseudo advice that dating experts give, like there's like the four steps to infatuation or whatever. Like she has this like sort of like step-by-step, this is the and and you just see her like slowly have a meltdown as she's like oh no men and cow have entered the attraction stage and they're <laughs> and it's just like it's such a perfect parody of like the way that those like type of dating experts talk that i was just like dying um it was just yeah she was just like kind of like everything that like makes me cringe about 2004 like cruzy like made it really funny (laughs) yeah that was kind of it kind of hard to do because that's not really a time period I like to revisit 
I think you clarified something for me. I think it's like when it's an exaggeration or like a parody of a real behavior and it's like shining a light on that. I think that's when it's like more funny rather than just being like silly for silliness's sake. I feel like if there's Mm -hmm. like an underlying commentary or like character trait that's being developed, I can buy it more. So, yes. Um, Anyway, I hope everyone enjoyed this unconventional episode structure and maybe you will like the books that we recommended to each other for yourselves. Also, thank you so much for listening to Reformed Rakes. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformedrakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at reformedrakes. Thank you again, and we will see you next time.